Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinSwift.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket of contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Cheek Skolfein, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, The First Guide to Funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be so glad you did. It's chock full of all kinds of funk goodness, reviews, lists, histories, all kinds of great fun, indispensable stuff, also makes a great gift. Whether you're watching to the YouTube broadcast or on funkinstuff.net or listening to the podcast version through iTunes and other link providers, as always, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in the show. It's all about you, the listener, the music fan. And make sure you subscribe if you haven't already done so. Subscribe to the Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives. You'll get early premieres and all kinds of fun stuff. It's free. Sign up, get friends and family, support these artists, support funk jazz and R&B, all that stuff that's meant so much in your lives. I know it's meant a lot of mine, so that's why I do this. This episode features two of the founding members of the seminal funk R&B jazz band, Pleasure. Singer, composer, keyboardist, producer, Michael Hepburn, and bassist, composer, singer, producer, Nathaniel Phillips, helped lead the group through a half dozen albums for Fantasy Records from 1975 to 1980, as well as a last hurrah with RCA Records in 1982. After being discovered by the man who would become their primary producer, Crusaders legend Wayne Henderson, the Portland, Oregon band went on to release some of the most distinctive, adventurous, and funky tracks of the era. The original lineup also included Hepburn's keyboardist brother, Donald, guitarist Marlon McLean, lead singer Sherman Davis, drummer Bruce Carter, percussionist Bruce Smith, and saxophonist Dennis Springer. Influenced by greats like the Crusaders, Headhunters, Band of Gypsies, Earth, Wind of Fire, James Brown, Sly Stone, Grand Central Station, Mother's Finest, Cool and the Gang, Tower of Power, and Return to Forever, among others, Pleasure produced nuanced music that at once sounded accessible, yet faithful to its own muse. And like the best, most creative bands, their development arc was evident with each successive release, making them a very rewarding group for fans to follow. Although hits were hard to come by for Pleasure, each record was chock full of rhythmic and soulful delights. Five of the records did manage to crack the top 35, though, on the R&B chart. The group finally did hit it big in 1979 with the monstrous bass-driven groove of Glide, which landed Pleasure's only top 10 R&B song from what was arguably the band's most accomplished album, Future Now. Other top tracks from Pleasure's catalog include Dust Yourself Off, Bouncy Lady, a sweet funky cover of Midnight at the Oasis, Let's Dance, Pleasure for Your Pleasure, theme from Moonchild, Joyous, Can't Turn You Loose, Sassafras Girl, Dance to the Music, Salim, Get to the Feeling, Thanks for Everything, Foxy Lady, Celebrate the Good Things, Future Now, Universal, Space is a Place, The Real Thing, Nothing to It, Law of the Raw, Take a Chance, Spread That Feeling All Around, and Now You Choose Me. Unfortunately, it was not long after the group peaked commercially that things began to fall apart, and by the early 1980s, members went their separate ways. Disillusioned on the music business, Michael Hepburn would eventually study for and become a lawyer. Phillips continued to lend his rumbling runs and plucking talents to a host of other artist projects 
including Bobby Lyle, Willie Bubbo, Roy Ayers, Billy Cava, Idris Muhammad, Side Effect, The Dramatics, Narada Michael Walden, Wilton Felder, In Vogue's Terry Ellis, The Daz Band, Jeff Lorber, and Herb Albert. Then, a few years ago, something miraculous happened. Pleasure began to reunite. Michael Hepburn and Phillips put their heads and musical aspirations together and reassembled an updated lineup that has led to the first new pleasure in music in more than 35 years. Among those also along for the ride, original members Smith and Springer, as well as latter years member Douglas Lewis on guitar. The result is a just-released eight-song collection appropriately titled Now is the Time. Amazingly, the album successfully picks up right where Pleasure left off in 1980, which is an enormous compliment and accomplishment. The album checks all of the boxes any fan could hope for, as it's a full serving of deep funk with strong soul, jazz, and rock flavorings blended in, all carried by impeccable musicianship, arrangements, and production. It's quite simply one of the most successful and authentic comeback works from any band of that period. In the most in-depth and comprehensive interview Pleasure has ever been associated with, Hepburn and Phillips reveal the group's entire history with the ups, downs, and in-betweens. That includes their formative years, being discovered, writing songs and laying down tracks, touring, evolving as a creative force, music business challenges, where they are back at it after so many years, and all about the latest record. So buckle up truth and rhythm as a pleasure principle is about to be in full effect. I am pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Command Center a pair of core members from one of the most progressive and dynamic funk R&B jazz bands of the 1970s. With me today is bassist, singer, composer Nathaniel Phillips and keyboardist, singer, composer, producer Michael Hepburn of the aptly named group Pleasure. And I have to say, the phrase, the pleasure is all mine, has never meant more. Thank you guys for being here. Uh, uh, you're very welcome. It's great to be here. Thank you for very inviting welcome. us. I second that very much. My great pleasure to be here too, Scott. So hopefully you figured it out by now, but Nate is the one with the uh, instruments there, and Michael is the one with the uh, nice uh, interior background. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, I did this. I, I you know, I, I could, if, if you want it, I could just like grab something and so okay. I have an instrument too, but I can't put it in the background. But uh, yeah, that's great. All right. Well, as I long as everyone knows, here, but if you yeah. wanted me to play for you right now, it's not connected though. Uh, hey, good excuse. No, <laughs> exactly. I, I, I've got a million of them. I got a million of them. Guys, it's so uh, great to have you on the show. I've been a fan since the '70s. We talked off air about that, and uh, viewers are just going to flip to have you on. Been wanting to tell the pleasure story for a long time, and it's way, way past due. So thank you so much. Fantastic. Let's do it. You know, and as we get into it, we're going to go back and, and talk about the history first. We're going to work our way up to something that people may not be aware of yet, and that's that there's new music. There's a new album, and it's fantastic, and I can't wait till we get to that and talk about that. So something to definitely stay tuned and look forward to. All right. Yeah, yeah. So, gentlemen, where are you from originally, and how did you first get into music? Let's start that one with Michael. Um, I learned uh, piano, started learning piano at six. Um, I, we both, and the whole band, uh, we grew up in Portland, Oregon. And uh, I uh, started playing in church uh, when I was, uh, I think, as young as nine years old. Uh, I am a Kojic, used to be pronounced Kojic. Uh, uh, church uh, is my church of origin, uh, Church of God in Christ, uh, which is uh, what it stands for. And um, uh, from that, um, I learned how to play uh, very, very progressive rhythmic gospel. Kojic is the, or Kojic is a church out of which uh, the hit, oh, the original of the hit, Oh Happy Day came from. Uh, and uh, uh, that music has always been, and still is today, uh, one of the most progressive sources of uh, African-American 
uh, oriented, jazz influenced, uh, blues influenced, stride piano influenced, uh, electronic influenced music um, in, uh, in the world today. Uh, but that's how I came up. And then I was bused uh, from my uh, community, which was the African-American community of Albina uh, in the seventh grade. And I met through being a bus, a guy named, a, a student named Dan Brewster. He was also a seventh grader. And Dan Brewster was an extraordinary musician. He became a very core member of Pleasure. Um, he is a guitarist. And he and his older brother had a group that played blues. And we, um, he, he went to a different grade school than me, but I met him through a, a, a good friend of mine who was also bust and went to dance school. And we started hanging out and playing together, having a great time. And he started turning me on to groups like Traffic, Stevie Winwood, and a bunch of other types of things. John Mayall, um, the blues resurgence was just happening. <clears throat> Paul Butterfield, um, and that really extended my gospel and funk and, um, you know, Motown types of roots. And I began to uh, get very, very interested in uh, broaden broadening my horizons. My older brother, Donald Hepburn, Don, had a group that he started, uh, I believe, about his junior year in high school or so at Jefferson High School. Uh, in Portland called the Soul Masters. And um, the hallmark of the Soul Masters was that we would have all of the very best musicians in Portland, like bar none. So every group, I'm gonna name some names so that people in Portland would go, oh my God, Totally Clips, Brown Sugar, um, Ronnie Steen, uh, Gary Hobbs, uh, who went on to play with Stan Kenton, he was a, uh, the drummer in Stan Kenton's band for years. Um, uh, all of those people uh, at one point would play uh, gigs with us uh, as the soul masters. And um, uh, I learned how to come up with horn arrangements on the fly, like I would actually sing horn parts to the different horn players that would sit in. Many of the horn players uh, once we began to get a little bit older, uh, were students at the Mount Hood Community College Jazz Band Program. It was a nationally recognized program, so well recognized that Donnie Osborne, whose uh, father owned Slingerland Drum Company and who was the protege of Buddy Rich, um, actually played drums at the Mount Hood Community College Jazz Band. Um, that band would compete with, say, um, North Texas State. That's the level of competition that Mount Hood was on at the time. My brother played uh, piano in that band for a year. Uh, I played, and I also taught a jazz improvisation course uh, that uh, when I was there. And the year that I was there, I think I'm going to say 1972 or three, uh, we won the I I won uh, individually. Uh, the National Association of Jazz Educators Award. Um, but I wouldn't have known how even to transcribe big band music if it wasn't for Dan Brewster, because Dan not only played blues guitar, he also played trombone. Mm -hmm. And he was a great trombone player. To hang out with him, I became the drum major of the Cleveland High School marching band because I could play drums, but I really didn't fashion myself toward drum because I was a keyboard player, a, pian a pianist principally. Um, as the 70s opened up and uh, the Fender Rhodes became uh, an important groundbreaking instrument, then, of course, um, my parents got one for my older brother. And, of course, I could not stay off of it. I had to get on there and play it also. <clears throat> and um, I became a regular playing and, and uh, um, contributing member of the Soul Masters. Um, we heard the group that Nathaniel, Marlon, McLean, and uh, Bruce Carter had, the franchise. I think you guys were first known as the Funky Franchise. The Funky uh, Franchise. Changed the name to Franchise, but we heard them, and we just thought it was all over. We just thought, oh, my God. 
we have got to talk them into playing with us too. And they were happy to do it. So we'd all play together. And just the chemistry and, you know, we were talking about this before, Scott. Um, it was it was just the the profound creativity that um, that they had. I just thought we really need to put a band together and make records. We, I knew that we could. Um, and so I talked the band into or sort of just convinced the band we needed a really professional commercial name. And I came up with the name Pleasure. Um, everybody liked it. And we started off from there. That was 1972. Yes. Um, and, and we played uh, regularly at a little club in Albina called uh, the down the upstairs lounge, but it really wasn't upstairs. So we used to call it the downstairs lounge, but uh, we got to where we were their house band and we played there for the next two years and or so. Um, um, and in the course of doing that, acts, major acts who were great musicians who would come to town would find out about us. And one of those people was Grover Washington Jr. Whenever Grover would come into town, he would come to where we were practicing and he'd hang out and play. Um, we always enjoyed him, he enjoyed us. And we thought by the time we got to where we could uh, put a um, demo tape together that he would be the guy who could like either produce us or get us some kind of foray into um, the recording uh, industry. And he Michael, told us. Yep. Excuse me. Yep. I'd like to stop you right there and get uh, Nate Nate's to give us a story. <laughs> now he got started. Shut up, Michael. And, ca and, ca and catch up with where you are. Beautiful. Okay. Well, I'll try to connect the dots. Uh, um, when you know, did you get? How did you get into music? Why the bass? And uh, uh, step us up from there, Nate. Well, I'll try to start at the, at the beginning here. Um, I was walking to school, second grade class, down 7th Avenue, walking up to my school, Highland School. And I would do it every day for the first couple of days of school. And uh, I saw this one day, this guy came out of a house and he just started running down, down towards me. And I'm looking at him, light-skinned guy. <laughs> And he ran up to me and said, hey, my, my name is Doug, Doug Lewis. I said, oh, I'm Nate. So we walked we walk to school together every day. Um, we became close friends. We were only a block apart when we lived near each other, of course. And um, we, we eventually started liking music. We were listening to music a lot and listening to the radio. We only had AM radios back then, you know, with one speaker and that whole thing. So we would, we would listen to all these Artists, James Brown would be on the radio, Mamas and the Pops would be on there, Turtles. We had a, it was a great mixture of, of different different artists at that time. And so we were loving it. So what would we do? We would go out to the garage and make instruments out of cardboards. So we would make a fake drum set with boxes, and I'd carve out a guitar, he would carve out a guitar. And so that, that lasted for about a summer. We decided, you know, God, we love to have some real instruments. So he asked his parents for a guitar. And I asked my parents for a guitar. And so <laughs> that very Christmas, we both got guitars. Okay, so um, Doug's brother wanted a, um, he got a drum set. And so here we are, we have two guitars and a drum set and we're in there banging around two guitars. And you know, we were thinking, God, where's the bass? Someone needs to play bass. <laughs> So I was the one that changed from guitar to bass. So I went, I went and asked my, my, my mom to exchange it for a bass guitar. And she got me a little cheap Aria guitar, bass guitar. And so we had, a, you know, so we had a little band. We would play around, you know, play in the, in, in the, in the backyard and play in the garage and, and mess around that way. I mean, that's, that's where the, basically where it started. Um, my my training is pretty much more generic than Michael's. I kind of just I learned by listening to a lot of records, a ton of records. My brother had an extensive um, record collection, and um, every other day or so he would come home 
and uh, bring a record in. Oh, I got this great record. He brought in one day, I don't know if you can see it from here, he brought in um, The Miracles Going to a Go-Go one day. Yeah, brought that I can in. see it back there. Yeah, he brought that in. That's why I have it up here. It means a lot to me. He brought that record in. He couldn't took the wrapper off. He put it on, you know, the needle down on the turn on the thing, and it was over then. When I heard that, I knew what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. It was such a relief. It was such a uh, inspiring, and it was kind of a way out too for me because I needed to focus on something. Because when I was growing, we we didn't have a lot of money. We had to make ends meet any way we could. So we would, the whole family, six of us, we would get up at three in the morning and go wait on the corner and wait for a bus to come pick us up to go pick beans and berries in the fields. So that's what we did. Every summer I did that to, to be able to afford to buy school clothes and that kind of thing. So, you know, sitting out there every day, man, and that heat and that stuff, <laughs> doing that. But what I did have, I did have a little radio. I always had my little radio going and I was, I was making sure I had my music. And so, so as, as time went on, and then and, and, and just an infection, you know, it was just kind of like a, a thing where I just knew I just had to do this. And so eventually, started the group, the franchise, and that, 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 that consisted of, of, of Bruce. It, it was, Doug was in there, too, and Marlon. And so that, that, that started that journey of us playing around and, and doing a few things here and there. And then so to connect the dot with Michael... That's 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 the connection. Michael heard of us and said, uh, "Hey, let's let's form a group." <laughs> that's that's well, how we came together. Who are some of your uh, first uh, inspirations as a bass player? Oh my goodness! Well, let's start from the beginning. Uh, Ron Carter mm. first. Mm. He's, he's always first. And, um, James Jamison. You know, Jerry Jamont, all those guys, all, all the soul guys back in the day, the guys that played on Stax records, you know, James Alexander, those guys, you know, all, all those great players, man. And there is a lot of unsung heroes. I didn't know who they were, but I would love what they, what they did. I love the guy from um, from Curtis Mayfield's band. Uh, I think his name is Lucky Scott, I think. Mm. I believe that's his name. Amazing bass player. I loved everything he did. Um, um, and, you know, and, and listening to all different kinds of music on the radio, I mean, I felt... I, I feel very fond of uh, folks like um, like Paul McCartney, um, Peter Cetera, Chicago, wow. uh, Rob Ellicott from from Cold Blood. I mean, Naming them all. Yeah, I mean these guys. I you see when when I say I'm fond of them, this is what I would do. I would have their records, and I would put them on, and I would learn every note of the record. <laughs> I would put it on and play along with it every day. That's all I did. Put on a record, play along with it, try to learn it. Uh, that was basically my, my training until I ran into Michael and these guys. These guys were the scholars, you know. <laughs> these guys were the musical genius. So they, after I got into their wing, they took me to a whole nother level. They introduced me to Miles and all these other guys, you know, all this other great music. And I'm like blown away. Michael and Donald and, and Dan were really responsible for teaching me how to listen to music. There's certain ways you can listen to it. Sometimes you listen to it from, from a ethereal part of it. But then they taught me how to be meticulous and, and, and to, to, to listen to the actual parts, why the parts work together, what the bass player was doing, what the drummer was doing. And these guys, they were not only telling me that they were they were actually acting it out. Michael would be like, listen, listen to Jack G. Jeanette on this part. He's playing, you know, Jack Jeanette playing a drum part on Miles thing. My, Michael would pick out a four-bar phrase of, of something on Bitches Brew or something. That, listen to that phrase right there. <laughs> man let's do something with that you know he was that, that kind of guy so he was very instrumental in teaching teaching me how to listen and to appreciate music so you know it all evolved from there you know uh, um, hey, could you could you read music no just no. play by ear yeah play by ear yeah I, I, had, I had no formal training at all you know I, I eventually I started getting into books and it started started um um you know, trying to trying to read uh, base books and things like that, the Mel Bass stuff and all that. <laughs> you know, the whole thing. Uh, eventually, I got a little grasp on it. People ask me now to read. I say yes. <laughs> yeah. Michael, who are some of your uh, you know first keyboard heroes? Oh, okay. Um, I have to say, early on, um, I was more influenced 
with just hit records like you know just like what Nate said um when a when a hit came out for me it was really about figuring out what the harmonies are what the parts are um how cool it was that this amalgam of instrumentation was working so incredibly together. Um, I, I can't tell you how electrifying it was for me to hear respect for the Absolutely. first several times. Absolutely. I can't, I can't tell you how spiritual, transcendental the experience was for me to hear um, uh, tighten up the first time. When everything breaks and the horns do, do we do, do we do, be, it was like so expressive and such a juxtaposition from how excited they were when they were grooving. And if you really listen to it, you can hear them rushing because they're playing so, they're like into it so hard. And so those are the kind of things that brought me into music. It wasn't like, oh, I'm a keyboard player. And I'm going to be real honest with you, Scott, even today, to a fault, I'm not a keyboard player. I'm that guy who's more editorial in my playing and in my approach. I don't like to know a whole bunch of runs. I don't try to play a bunch of smart stuff. And, I, and people talk about that. They criticize me because I'm not some big riff guy. But what I am, I am an interpreter of great music. That's my... That is where my heart is. That's where my consciousness remains. That is who I will be. And I will never be that guy who wants to be, who wants to pontificate about music. I'm not, I'm not that guy. I'm the guy who wants the joy and the beauty. I listen to so many Burt Bacharach. I'll never forget when yes. I first heard when I first heard Dionne Warwick, Here I Am. Do you know that tune, Scott? I don't know by title. Okay, you have got, please do me a big favor and sometime find Here I Am, Here I'll Stay, and listen to what Burt Bacharach and how David really brought. Because that's the tune that, that explored, that was such an incredible tune. Um, yeah. And I had to learn it. I, there's no, it's like I had, Maiden Voyage, I had to learn it. Had to learn it. <laughs> I had to figure it out. Nefertiti? Oh, no, 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 no. I am intelligent enough to figure this out. And I'm going to show you Round Midnight. Oh, no, 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 no. I got, let me, no, that's not really what they played. This is what they played. And this is how it works together. I mean, that's, I'm analytical about the cool shit. That's what I do. That's who I am. And, you know, it's funny. Um, that's really what pleasure is about. And that's really the untold story of pleasure. And I'm really glad that we can talk about that, Scott. You've done me a great favor to be able to help me tell the real story of what pleasure. We would sit and listen and say, oh, my God, this one passage of Dance to the Music, Sly Stone. Yes. You know, <laughs> we would just like and then we would just analyze it and figure it out. And it was no. There was no um, criticisms and there was no browbeating. It was like we're just gonna we're just gonna play this thing until we really it really fits, and we just kept doing that. And we would do it like like Nate said. We elevated that. We started doing it with you know with Miles stuff. We started doing it with Herbie stuff. We just we just kept doing that, and then we started adding our own. Uh, um, um, originals and we couldn't you know we were so um, ill-equipped as com young composers we came up with crazy names like homemade rolls and exercise five <laughs> this is exercise exactly. seven you know? <laughs> we, were, we were like telling the audience stuff like that and then we start and people would go it's going to sound like an exercise and we go beat up and everybody goes, oh my God, this is what they're practicing on? You know, people realized we were taking being... My favorite song is Exercise 7. 
Exactly. There you go. You never know, though. Follow the exercise seven. Future, bro. Exercise seven. And all the poor people. I remember that. I remember that. Hey, I remember a time when I don't know how we all wound up at, at, um, I guess it was called, was it Denny's Music? Yes, it was. On 39th. Yes. We all wound up there one day and. We just kind of walked in, and we picked up all picked up instruments, and the store kind of let us do it. And I think we might have played the whole yes. first side of, of of Chicago Two, the one with uh, yes. before. I think we went through the whole that whole side. We yes. all better in soon. Better in soon. We went through all played better the in soon. <laughs> we played the whole thing from from beginning to the end, and yeah. no one said that. <laughs> the, the, the store just let us go and. It was pretty amazing. I mean, that, that was that's, that's how we learn. We just learn by by just picking the things that we loved and respect, and just tried to see if we could do it. You know. Yeah, and I and the same with with music tech. I mean, you know, when I heard the Echoplex on a Rhodes for the first time, that was it. That was like, up, oh, gotta get an Echoplex. You know, wah wah with Rhodes. Zavanal, you know, Zavanal was such an important um, uh, influence. Uh, you know, I mean. I, I, to this day, I still feel like he really is um, not recognized for his contributions to jazz. Because you got to go all the way back to, you know, even before Mercy, Mercy, Mercy. But you got to mm -hmm. go back to Mercy, Mercy, Mercy. You got to go back to Cannibal Adderley. And I think you have to go back to Dinah Washington. He played for Dinah Washington right after he got off the boat in the United States. He, you know, it wasn't like he just was kind of like into, um, you know, the African-American musical heritage and tradition. He lived it. He lived it. Absolutely. You know, but his electronic approach was, it meant the world to me. And it showed me the way. Just like Switched On Box showed me the way, you know, and just like the advent of the Art Odyssey show. I mean, I, I just followed it all i couldn't buy them and so when i first got uh, you know exposed to synthesizers it took me so long to figure out what to how to do it people actually were laughing at me like oh he'll never figure it out now nobody has to say anything about whether i can figure out it, it out or not but <laughs> but it was it was tough going and i and just because you're you know i happen to be really my first real extensive interview the person for me to shout out to is Tim Gorman. Tim Gorman went on to play with The Who, The Stones, um, but he turned me on to so much related to synthesizers, and Tim did some extraordinary work on the Pleasure Records. Yeah, Tim was I amazing. I mean, incredible work on Living Without You, um, Real Thing, um, mm -hmm. Law of the Raw. He, you know, Law of the Raw, what you hear sounds like um, a, you know, a, a, a sequencer, but it was like back before you could sync it up to anything. But that's, he brought these two little step sequencing little boxes and that's what he used. And I mean, he just taught me so much about innovation. He taught, he turned me on to Yellow Magic Orchestra. I'm going to stop there because I think I've told you a million influences, <laughs> right? Outstanding. Um, appreciate it, Michael. How, 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 did you, how did your approach or style, though, differ from your brothers since you're both playing keyboards? Well, Donald really, truly, um, I think is, I'm going to say it my way. I think he's even more original than I am in terms of how he conceptualizes music. Um, and that's why the things that, that, that Donald will come up with are so genuinely original. I don't think you're going to get anything more original than like Dust Yourself Off right. or Real Thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, Ladies you know, Night Out. And, yeah, Ladies Night Out, Sassafras Girl. Sassafras. I mean, <clears throat> the great thing about it is that as, as my older brother, as a very young kid, I emulated him. I mean, like, I actually wanted to be him. And What's the um, age difference? I'm sorry? What's the age difference? He's three years older. So, like, when he was a senior, I'm pretty sure I was a freshman in high school. But I was, across, I was going to school across town. But when he first started playing with, like, uh, a little uh, ensemble, 
it was unbelievable to me. I was like, oh, that's what I want to do. That's what I got to do. And so, you know, I really was influenced by all of his ideas, the things he came up with. But he really, truly was, um, I'm just going to say, very uniquely and deeply originally innovative. Um, you know, there's another two others that for me are, I'm going to say, Again, everybody, you know, I'm just, this is my, this is just, just my opinion. Masterpieces. The first is Now You Choose Me. Now You Choose Me is mm -hmm. a masterpiece. It's That's nothing tough. short of a masterpiece of synthesizer mm -hmm. work, <clears throat> um, groove, I mean, the groove structure, everything about it. And the other is Sending My Love. I mean, if you just really take them, Take those tunes pound for pound, totally, you know, dissect them, disassemble them and look at it. It's far greater than the sum of its parts, each one. But he's just he's that original. Um, and, yep. you know, and I don't think you can look at those tunes and go, oh, that tune's influenced by this guy or that tune's influenced. It's not. It don't, not. He didn't reflect influences of other artists or other composers at all. He's, he's, I mean, just, I wrote a song for him uh, that made it on the um, Except No Substitutes album called Theme for the Moonchild, because I was trying to express how deep I think his um, creativity goes, because I think he's just a very, very deeply creative uh, Absolutely. musician. Absolutely. Uh, I will... I will attest to that. Brilliant guy and a good-hearted guy. Yes. Probably the heart of the group, you know. Probably the heart yes. of the group. Yes. Very much so. So, guys, uh, let's go back now to when uh, Grover had seen you guys, and you thought that might be the ticket, but it didn't quite turn out that way. So which one of you wants to run with a little bit from there? I'll just take it go ahead. one you step, run one step okay. further. <laughs> And then I, when I pass the baton to Nate, you, you'll know why. Just take, just, Michael, just take, take us through uh, um, getting discovered and getting a record deal. And there then, you go. Okay, That's there it. you go. So, so we, we, we tr I, I, I offered the demo tape to Grover. And Grover said, I can't do anything with it. I'd love to. It'd be great. Um, but I hear that Wayne Henderson of the Crusaders is going to get a production deal and going to be producing uh, art, young artists. And so mm -hmm. you really need to get your demo tape to him. When the Crusaders came to town and played at the Paramount Theater, right. I approached Wayne and said, you got to hear my band. You got to hear this demo tape. Honestly, we're, we're good enough to make records. And we, I've heard that you're going to be producing, producing artists. And he was like totally interested from the beginning. Got him the demo. He came and listened to us play. Now was that at Day's music? That, was that, that might have been the. Uh, no, it was at. That was at. Oh, was it Denny's music upstairs? Was, I, I don't know studio. if it was at Denny's or if it was Day's, but they had a little yeah. studio place up upstairs in the right. kind of loft. And we played for him, and it was late. It was like early in the morning because they had played their concert. And he said, okay, this is fantastic. If you can get to L.A., I can get you, um, uh, I can get you showcased. And I talked with several of the band members' parents because if I remember it correctly, Nate, Marlon, Bruce Carter, they were so young, we had to get their parents' permission. I don't think I had to worry about talking to Marlon's parents, but um, I talked to them to say, we would like to move to L.A. in the summer of 1974 Four. so that we can try to get a record deal. And they gave us permission. So we were, they were really in charge and entrusted to us to go to L.A., and what, uh, Michael, yep. what, what, what type of set list were you playing when Wayne Henderson came to see you guys? What, how much of it was covers and what kind of covers versus originals? So almost all of it was covers, but 
Um, Cause I think that we did like love the life you live. Um, right. And I honestly think what we did were covers, but we had originals. We might've put originals, but I don't think we did. Um, but as you, and yeah. as history shows, dust yourself off was, you know, all originals except for like midnight at the Oasis. But, um, but we got their permission of, of their parents to go to LA we stayed in a two-bedroom apartment with friends of our then manager. He was a, um, I'm going to say, elementary school teacher. I could be wrong, but I think Jimmy Robinson was an elementary school teacher. Yeah, I think at so. At the time, but he would get us. He would he would promote these gigs. He would rent a ballroom in a hotel, and we would like play, and we'd have like gigs there. People could dance and whatnot, and so um, he. Um, had a connection to a relative, and we went to L.A. We stayed in a two-bedroom apartment in Englewood, all of us, with the two people who actually rented the apartment, and we played the Whiskey A Go-Go um, on weekends, and after hours on weekends, we played a place called Mavericks Flats in the Crenshaw District, and that was a place where you could hear everybody, Chaka Khan, um, uh, uh, Commodores, the lockers. I don't know if that name re means anything to yeah. you. The, the dance, the lockers. They were yeah. there, and they were the group. They were the troupe that would like keep people on the dance floor all Trick night long. Yep, <laughs> yeah. we run there all those guys. Yep, all of them. But that was like those. That was how we got exposed, um, and um, fantasy expressed interest. And Wayne told us that. And here's where there's a little controversy. There may be a few bits of that as we go. But um, Fantasy and Wayne worked out a deal where Fantasy signed Wayne as the producer. And Wayne offered a deal to us to sign to him as, as, an, as an act. Yeah, you guys were young. Mm -hmm. I didn't approve. I didn't want to do that. I thought we should be signed directly to the label. And so I said, well, I'm not going along. And everybody else was very sure we may not, we may not get this opportunity and we want to make records now. And Wayne was a fabulous producer, a great, a great human being. And I think also for us, and I'm just speaking for me, I'm projecting this onto everybody. I think he was a father figure. Because most of us either lost our fathers when we were young or didn't have father figures growing up in our homes. But I think he was truly a father figure. I don't think it was any coincidence that he called himself Big Daddy. Big Daddy. I, don't think, I don't think there's any coincidence to any of this. But again, this is just my perception based on what how I lived it. And I came back to Portland. And in 1975, my brother, Sherman, came to me and said, you got to come back. The direction is good, but it's not great. And you've got to come back. And so I had missed music. I had missed what the band was doing. The band had made a record. The record was incredible. And I just thought, OK, I'm doing yeah. it. I'm going back. Yeah. And so I came back to the band in 1975. That's right. Right. That's so you right. only missed the first record, right? I missed the first. Missed record. the first record, yeah. and that yeah. was for the band. That was you know, the beginning of a. That was the beginning of a lot of. Um, well, it was an eye-opening situation for us because that was the beginning of, of having to make tough decisions. Michael leaving, um, that was tough for us to take. But we knew we, you know, we kind of had to do it anyway. We kind of had to move, move forward. But then the big, the other thing was that in in the studio process, we had to deal with certain things. Um, just to be honest with you, Wayne wasn't a big fan of, of um, Donald's playing. You know, Donald's a great player, he's a great composer, but Wayne was hearing a certain thing. Wayne was used to Joe, <laughs> people like hey, Joe. You got Joe Sample, you don't need nobody. <laughs> he would just, just walk in and play anything, you know. And so that was difficult because I felt, I, I saw the heartbreak in, in Donald, and Donald being a principal writer and one of the main guys in the group. You know, we should, that's another tough decision we had to make. Okay, what do we, what do we do? Wayne, we're signed to Wayne. Wayne wants to bring in Joe. Okay, so Joe Sample comes in 
on the first record. You'll see it on there. He's on, he's there. And he's playing here. Yep. He's playing keys and he's playing um, you know synthesizer and all that stuff. It was a tough decision, but we kind of we you know we were kids. We went, we just rolled along with it until um, until better times came around. You know, and Wayne was really sweet about it. He wasn't he, he wasn't mean at all to to, to Donald at all to any of he was a sweetheart. You know, but he just wanted it to be a certain way for our first product. He put his, he, he was, in his way, he was trying to put his best foot forward on one of his first productions, because we were one of his first productions, uh, us, and um, I think it might have been Side Effect, I think might have been the... Ronnie Laws. Yeah. Ronnie Laws, yeah. So he was really striving to, to make the best records he could, and in his mind, he thought by bringing in, bringing in Joe that it would help. And, um, you know, it just it is what it is. So if I so, if I could, Scott, I know I know this is your interview, and I'm not going to take it from you. But let me just because this is this is a really great um, this is great uh, information now about the band that I think is going to you're going to appreciate it. The fans are going to appreciate it. So when I came back, I came back loaded for bear, and what we brought when we came back when I came back was so hot that Wayne took me with Nate. With every well, with everybody, and we went down to L.A. and that's when we did the first side effect. Um, always there, uh, recorded that. We recorded um, Ronnie Law's Fever. Um, right. But but after that, I want, I want to make sure you get it. It's like I played keys on that stuff, so it was like okay, Pleasure is going to have their own keyboard approach. Pleasure's going to be able to make their own records. Pleasure's going to be able to do what they do. That was my whole agenda when I came back. And by 1979, we made our own records. That's That was what I came back with. I want to make sure everybody hears me say it. It wasn't anything personal against Wayne. It wasn't, I'm going to get revenge. It was, we sound a certain way. This is our sound. It's right. valid. It's a val It's valid. Right. You know, we know right. that it's hard sometimes to convince people about what we do, but when they actually get it, they get it. But then I'm going to pass this baton to Nate, and because from there, Nate established a relationship with Wayne. I mean, he went on to play with, on, with Wayne on lots of different other stuff, and maybe even played with the Crusaders, but you tell us about I it. I did. I did. And that was the whole thing with the whole... It was interesting because at that age, you know being ambitious and wanting to be successful and being afraid at the same time. You're like, Oh yeah. Being thrown in with all these great artists. And I'm, I'm like saying, man, I don't know if I can do it. Wayne is like, Hey man, yeah, you can do it. Come on, Nishki, come on, man, and play on this, play on this. And so of course I, to say no would be, would, wouldn't have been right. I, 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 I'd be full of regret to this day. Mm -hmm. Well, you wouldn't be who you are today. As, well, as well, incredible as you are. Partly true too. But um, the big, my biggest fear was the guys in the band not liking what I was doing. I mean, I'm I'm like thinking every okay, these guys are seeing me I'm going on play with these other guys, and I don't want to get fired <laughs> because I love players. This is my band, you know. And so that was always in the back of my mind. But I knew if I didn't do those those other sessions, I, I would I would regret those. I would. And so um, you know. And doing all those sessions with Wayne was great. The Ronnie Law stuff, the side effects stuff, all spice, all all of his acts, David Oliver, name a few. They were all tremendous, and that was a great learning experience for me. I learned a lot by just hanging out with Wayne and, and um, watching how he produced. More, not so much about the musical aspect of it, but but the way he psychologically encouraged yes. acts. To yes, I would watch him work with Ronnie. And I'd be amazed because he was such a, a he's a, a great cheerleader. He would always he was always uplifting. He would always make you feel that you could do more than what you even thought you could do. And he would he would if he, if he had to take it incrementally, man, play this verse. Let's do that. I'll get you. Boom. Play this verse. Well, I'll get you. He did with Ronnie and everybody else. You know. So he was and for for that aspect of the Wayne. I I just love him for that because he was really 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 inspirational for me. And um, Nate, Nate brought all that back to pleasure. Go ahead, well, Scott. Well, before we move off for that first record, I just wanted to to say, uh, it definitely sounded a lot like Crusaders type music. <laughs> yes, but, sir. You know that's not a bad thing. You, you know, could, you could, you I, I love the Crusaders. Yes. Yeah. 
And um, um, Midnight at the Oasis was not a fan of that original, but I liked what you guys did with it. That's funky, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, you know, yeah. There's that, so much that of that stuff. on that record, that whole record. You know, um, I I just have to say, uh, but yeah, Midnight at the Oasis is just a funk. It's a funk stomp down, <laughs> and it's such a great treatment of the record. But that's that's the brilliance of Wayne. <clears throat> yeah, it was not a by the numbers uh, cover. It was cool. Yes. Right. Right. Exactly. So now let's leap into Accept No Substitute. And, uh, you know, great record. Um, you guys are doing a lot of writing. Well, well go ahead. Go ahead, Nate. No, 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 well, please. I was, was going to say that, that one thing, another good thing about Wayne, he always expressed us writing our own material. I mean, he was always a cheerleader for that. You know, um, Nate, write a, you know, you, man, you can write one little, write a little bass line, write a song around it. You know, that he was always like that, you know. Um, he always encouraged that. And so that, 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 that's one of the things we're grateful for because it could have gone the other way. It could have been, you know, we were signing him. It could have been, him. Hey, I'm bringing in all these songs. I'm, I got these songs. I want you to do. But Wayne was a collaborator. He brought, he had ideas and we would take them and make songs out of them. Like, let's dance, all those other songs. You know, he would, he would, um, he just wanted to be a part of the team. Yeah, you know, um, coming back um, to the band in 75, I wasn't there for that hit side of Except No Substitutes. I think that's Jerry Peters on Let's Dance. That is Jerry I'm not Peters. sure. Yeah, but Jerry Peters. I learned so much yeah. about what Wayne wanted from just that track. And I was like, <laughs> Oh, I can sprinkle stuff can, up there in the upper register and then come back down and comp back here, you know, and I can just comp, you know. I learned a lot about how to comp and let let the the rhythm arrangement breathe from what they did. Um, but I brought compositions and they made side two of Except No Substitutes. And everything Nate just said just now about Wayne is so true because it was just, well, I got this tune called Jamming with Pleasure. And it was a old, we did that tune way back, way back before they got, we got signed. Right. And right. it was like, I just, everybody went, oh my God, yeah, Jamming with Pleasure, let's do that. And so we just did it. And Wayne went, yeah, let's do yeah. it. You know, that was it. <laughs> And then I said, yeah, well, I got this other one, theme for the moonshot. Yeah, let's do it. You know, it was like he got our jazz side from theme for the moonshot. It was like he got to hear our jazz influence that we have that's totally ours from doing that tune. And that helped set a good direction because we had those tunes. We did that kind of music, but it just hadn't been really presented and captured yet. But that was my con contribution. It's very limited, a contribution to accept no substitutes. But it meant something, and it meant something for our independence, because the next step after that was joyous. And from there right. on, Wayne and I never had to look back. It was like, he heard joyous, and it was like, that's it. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, talk to me a little bit while we're uh, around the second record about what some of the other guys brought to the mix, like a Marlon McLean or a Dennis Springer and the, and Bruce. Tell me about those guys a little bit or tell the viewers about them and what they brought. My, my take on that is, is their mark had already been made from Jump Street. So the, the handle Marlon the Magician, that came from Donald. That came from me and Donald talking about Marlon's playing, okay? And so, from the very beginning, Marlon's solo work was a hallmark of pleasure. That's why on Dust Yourself Off, it's a hallmark. You know, Bouncy Lady. Bouncy Lady. And, you know, Dennis Springer, he was always a hallmark of pleasure. That solo on Bouncy Lady, that's a crazy solo. And at the end where he goes into the Fat Albert, ba-dee-da, ba-dee-boo-dee, dwee-doo-da, you know, the jam, the jam 
that introduces Dennis's solo on Bouncy Lady, I got to tell you, for me, that's another, that, well, again, that's another Donald Hepburn special. That there you tune. go. And you can actually hear that, just the um, just the vocal hook with the drum. Bruce Carter's, his drum, um, drum pattern on Bouncy Lady, it's so, it's so, so solid, but it's so tricky. I mean, you just have to listen to it and hear what he's actually doing to understand how hooky the tune is. But, you know, you can hear, uh, uh, even to this day, rap records where they're going bouncy, bouncy, lady. I mean, you know. Well, yeah. It's still out there because of how innovative it was. But, but Marlon's solo on it, Dennis's solo on it, Marlon's solo on Midnight at the Oasis, that's just a hallmark. Marlon Solo on Joyous. It's just a hallmark. Hallmark, absolutely. You know, and so um, th- you know, their mark and their, uh, I'll just say it this way, their signature, their autograph on what is the pleasure sound, it's been there from day one. Day one. But absolutely. it was designed from day one. It wasn't like, oh, you know, they were like, oh, let me do this. It was like, we designed it. It was designed. And so the thing is, is when Nate was doing all these sessions and he would come back and he was so, I would just say, head, head, head over heels above everybody, head and shoulders from his experience. The more he did, the more he could state his own case in terms of what he brought to the band. And you can't argue against Tune In. I don't know if you remember the song Tune In. That's right. Remember- that's how I don't know if you remember the song "Your Love Means Life." Yeah, that's get to the feeling. Yeah, see, I to me, you know, yeah. I, I was I, I just marveled in all the great songwriting and, and the first couple of records because I didn't really write anything on on the first two except for the collaboration on "Let's Dance." Um, I well, I don't think I was even comfortable with my writing at that time, but it, it got to a point later on in the in the um, career of the band, I found that I. There was just much, so much more that I needed to say within the group besides just playing bass. <laughs> I, I love it. This. It's got to be a little bit more than this. So. We're all yeah. the better for it. And, and yeah, man. A, a, B, a to infinity and beyond now because, like Cult I said, growth, artistic he, growth. He introduced Art, Tune In. Yeah. When you introduced Tune In, again, that was a new vortex for the band. It was a whole, you know, just everybody, people should just listen to it. Don't worry about the lyrics. Don't worry about, you know, um, us singing kind of like a glee club in nice harmonies and stuff. <laughs> listen to the music and listen to how well, progressive it is. Well, the thing is, what was interesting for me, though, Michael, what, 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 what I found fascinating about that, that song and just that whole era was yeah. that I was just happy that you guys said yes to a, a song that I had written. That's where I was about it. I was like, man, I'm so glad, man. Because like, during that circumstance, during that period of time, I was still, you know, running around playing other people. You know, I was doing that stuff. So I still had that in the back of my mind. So, man, I hope you guys aren't mad at me. <laughs> but um, I brought, you know, so I was, I was just thrilled to eventually get a song. <laughs> you sound like a people pleaser, Nate. Well, I'm gonna tell you. Yeah, I tell you this. It, it, it's you know, this is how this is how I experienced it. With each new development, and I think it's fair to say, Scott, as everyone, as a person walks through life, they look for meaning in the developments of the things that happen. That happened. And there were people who progressed by leaps and bounds and light years. There were people who became very captivated with what the band had accomplished and wanted to try to make that into a formula. And formula is a nice security space. It's, it's, it's got structure, it's got walls, it's got, you know, but, you know, as Nate developed, he became so just progressive and innovative and it's because of all the people that we all listen to he took i'm going to say it this way he took the teaching seriously or else the teaching took to him 
with more seriousness. That's true. And so the two of us sit here today as peers because of the way he took it and what he's doing with it now. He's showing me things now. And so, you know, my take on it is just, I really, it's not about not liking any person or anything being personal, but it is about meaning. It is about significance. And it is about having that done without rivalries or, you know, any kind of undue uh, desires to um, make someone justify how creative they are. You don't, we don't, we don't need it. 